Welcome to The Mockingcast, the podcast of Mockingbird Ministries. I'm David Zoll, your host, and in just a few moments, I'll be joined by my co-hosts, Sarah Condon and R.J. Heyman. We come to you every other Friday to explore a few of the places where we currently see grace and its absence playing out in unexpected and compelling ways. We're glad to have you with us. Praise the Lord. It's been a little bit of a break here, but I'm glad to see your smiling faces as I will see them in two weeks up in New York. I am really pumped about that. And I don't know if people saw on the website, but we're actually going to be doing a live taping of the Mockingcast up in New York right as people are arriving on Thursday night. So if you're in town, if you're around, even if you can't make the conference, come down and say hello. We'd love to see you. RJ kicks it off that night. And RJ, you have any any uh, teaser words you want to share? Well, I think the topic of the conference is so apt for this moment. You know, grace in a divided world, man. We, we live in crazy days. And so I'm going to talk a bit about that and some of my own experiences with living in a divided world and sometimes a divided church. And then I want to... I want to actually, I want to look at the Bible a little mm-hmm. bit and see how St. Paul specifically like responded because there was a lot of, you know, people were like, oh, the early church was such a, a haven of unity. And it's like, yeah, for about, you know, half a chapter in Acts 2. Yeah, for like and 30 after, seconds. For like 30 <laughs> seconds, all the believers had everything in common. And then they're like, wait, Jesus is coming back tomorrow. Let's find something to fight about. Yeah. And they did. So he dealt with a lot of conflict and and deals with it in a really beautiful, ingenious, unexpected sort of novel way. And so hoping to bring some of, you know, his his wisdom into the present moment, you know, if, if a fight doesn't break out. <laughs> because as we know, there, there, there are words you cannot say in this present moment. Oh so my goodness. I'll try to say all, I'm going to say all of them. I'm just going to list them all. Well, I, I don't know if we'll go people, people know this probably because it, it feels like a little while ago, but RJ is responsible for giving the single darkest talk that has ever been given at a Mockingbird <laughs> conference. It wasn't the one you gave in Houston. It was in Charlottesville. And I think you opened up everything because you talked about suicide, but you opened up by saying, I don't know if you know this, all of you who've come here, but you've signed up for a conference all about suffering. So welcome to the show. It's going to be great. <laughs> you remember that? Let's get dark. I do. I do remember that. And it was, uh, yeah, it was pretty heavy, but I also remember amazing conversation. And it seemed like, you know, we talked about this too. A lot of people have experienced some pretty dark things. A lot of people have close experiences with things like suicide. And it's not someone that anyone really wants to talk about or bring up at a dinner party, but it's out there. And so it was, uh, it was a fruitful time, I felt like. Yeah. I remember you asked how many people in the audience had sort of had personal experiences of suicide. And I thought, oh God, this is this is going to be embarrassing. <laughs> this is the this end. This is the end. This is the and end. then I think like three quarters of the hands went up, and it was just I, I was, yeah. you know, naive. I, I couldn't believe that, and maybe it was self-selecting, but still, the other people that have spoken over the years, we've had, you know, Tim Kreider, my, my father, certainly been responsible for some dark stuff, and our own Sarah Condon is no slouch in that department, but uh, <laughs> uh, you win the prize, RJ, so... There were moments of levity. Moments of levity. Yeah, Sarah, that's what I'm about. You're, speaking of levity, though, you're going to be our chaplain. Yeah, which is weird. I mean, I honestly was surprised that you asked me to do that because I... We all were. I feel like, yeah. I mean, I feel like a lot of the people who write for Mockingbird and speak for Mockingbird 
have dealt with like their own fair share of like internet anger, but I'm not sure anyone's been called the B word by members of their own denomination. So when you picked me out to be the chaplain, I was like, I mean, I am a B word. I just want to clarify that I'm definitely a B word, but (laughs) you know, to have been called it on the internet by people of my own denomination was an interesting experience. And so I was like, wow, this is really weird. Cause I feel like a little divisive sometimes just by virtue of things I've written. So (laughs) it's an interesting thing to think about being the chaplain. I don't know. I don't know what you're talking about, Sarah. I don't know. (laughs) You'll be so great, Sarah. It's going to be awesome. Yeah. Well, when you have awesome. that moment, you're like, wow, the Westboro Baptists are nicer than Episcopalians. You're like, what's happening right now? Well, that's, I, I, yes, I, you have definitely stirred the pot on occasion. But, you know, what comes across to me in your writing, and I'm not just saying this for because it's we're, we're being recorded, but you care so much for yeah. people that when you're actually saying something that maybe is potentially taken both a good way and a bad way, Mm -hmm. you're almost always doing it out of a deep compassion for suffering people. So that's one of the many reasons. Call out those sacred cows, Sarah Condon. Do it. (laughs) Slay them. (laughs) No, I'm excited. It's going to be awesome. It's such a great conference. Every year I go and I think I would show up at this regardless of how connected I was to Mockingbird or not. It's such a breath of fresh air. And I wish that every especially clergy person I knew, but just every tired person I know, which is like everyone I know could go to Mockingbird. So y'all come. It's going to be great. And we've just announced a bunch of new details as well. So, but let's get into what we have to speak about. And the first thing was this amazing little humor column in the New Yorker that Ethan highlighted last week. Journal entries from my imaginary week without anxiety. Uh, March 27th. (laughs) Had the weirdest night's sleep, uninterrupted and full of pleasant dreams. Woke up with all this energy for the day. Weird. My first waking inclination is usually to check my phone to see who hates me and what's going wrong in the world. Today, I thought, maybe I'll have some orange juice. Uh, (laughs) The next day, March 28th, enjoyed a single cup of coffee without immediately having to down three more in an effort to summon the motivation to do anything, but which instead caused trembling and heart palpitations. This afternoon, I took an hour to just kind of be, you know, breathing. So important. (laughs) Finally checked my phone, found out that my friend does hate me, but it's okay. I trust we'll work it out. And then by March 31st, I'm off coffee. Breathing deeply just gives me so much energy. Nobody seems to want to hang out with me this week, though, but that's totally cool. I'm having trouble coming up with jokes. Everything's so beautiful. Why would I want to look at the world through a sarcastic, cynical lens? And naturally, I thought about both of you guys and your own journaling habits as I read this. <laughs> yeah, I think my favorite part from this is actually where he goes on the date. I mean, I think we could just read the whole thing out loud. But because although I don't go on dates anymore, I do go out with friends. And I often have the experience of like getting home and like processing out loud with my husband. And I'm like, you know, are they only friends with me? Cause like, you're the, the priest of the church or like, do I even have real friends? And did I talk about myself too much? And like all this sort of like inner working. So it was reassuring. Like he talks about his date and he's like, for some reason, I didn't wonder if it had gone well enough to warrant a second date. If the things that seem like red flags would become even redder flags somewhere down the line, if there would be a down the line, if I talk too much about Spider-Man, I mean, it's like, 
this is what a lot of people do. I hope it's what everyone does. This made me feel so normal because I was like, oh my gosh, I totally do that, you know? And my husband's just sitting on the couch like, you have friends. It's fine. <laughs> and later on, it's like, it turns out I did talk too much about Spider-Man. Good, good to know for the future. My wife always sits next to me at dinner parties and she'll give my leg a little squeeze when I need to calm it down. You know, that's, <laughs> that's her signal for like, rain it in, honey. You know, like under under the table. Yeah, I, I related to pretty much everything in this article, especially the thing about, I've often had the thought to myself, if I get healthier, will I cease to be myself? You know, his, his whole thing about, you know, I can't, I'm not, don't feel motivated to tell jokes. I, you know, yes, that's the that's way I make so my living, but we'll deal with that. We'll deal with that later. But if I was actually to deal with my foibles or whatever, get healthier, would I cease to be myself? Would I cease to be, you know, what makes me, me, or has given me any degree of success? So I have that fear too. But on the flip side, just reading that, as you said, it was like nice to know that I'm not alone. It, it actually sort of made my day and filled me with tremendous peace to know that I'm just like, you know, he's just like, me. And it reminded me, Dave, of something that your dad, I think, once said about preaching, that if in your preaching, you can talk deeply enough about kind of the universal human experience and call it out in such a way that people relate to it, that in and of itself is almost the gospel. Mm -hmm. You know, it's almost good news because it's like you're forgiving and you're allowing people to sort of love and embrace the part of themselves that they don't really want to talk about Mm. and how healing that is. And that's how I felt reading that article. It felt incredibly healing and it's just nice not to feel alone. I'm glad I could play a role in healing you, RJ. I I really... I feel like I've been doing that for years. I feel like... Well, keep trying. You actually it ain't do working. talk about Spider-Man too much, RJ. Dave didn't want to tell you, but it's actually Spider-Man. It's Spider-Man Two that I talk too much <laughs> I know, about. One of my favorite uh, talks of all time the... that he gave was oh all gosh, about Spider-Man, Spider-Man Two. I'm not kidding. It was amazing. Are you serious? Yeah, yeah. I just got it a is, lot it's, to say. It's pretty. Mu- it, it's. Uh, I think it's about <laughs> one of the clearest. Uh, <laughs> you just. Uh, I'm gonna stop now. No, I'm not. Uh, <laughs> it's one of the <laughs> clearest visual representations of the fruit of the law versus the gospel. Mm-hmm. At the end of Spider-Man 2, when he's with Sarah Jane and she's left the side of her groom and they're together and they hear a siren and she, she looks at him and says, go get him, tiger. I kind of well up every time because he has a woman who understands him and releases him to do what he feels called to do, um, as opposed to what he feels he should do. So there's, all, <laughs> if you can see Sarah's face, she's like, You're, you talked way too much about Spider-Man. So I'm just going to just... just uh, I love it. I it. love our web slinger. <laughs> well laid friendly, friendly neighborhood yeah. web slinger. Let's go from something uh, kind of light <laughs> to something actually dark. You know, I've, my little son is so into Sesame Street more than any of our boys have ever been. Our Aww. last one. And so it's always like, what's the letter of the day? What's the what's the word? Of the, well, the word of the day today is loneliness. <laughs> Aren't you glad you tuned in? Right. But, uh, seriously, you just said you'd felt less lonely hearing about anxiety. This is an article written by Christine Emba in the Washington Post, and it's about Patrick Deenan's book, Why Liberalism Failed, which has been getting a lot of airtime all over the place. And this is sort of a nonpartisan take on that kind of courageously or uh, brazenly titled book. She says that Deenan thinks that classical liberalism has proved itself a disaster, not because it fell short, but because it was true to itself. Then she goes on to say that on the right hand of the ideological spectrum, Deenan notes, classical liberalism celebrated the free market, which facilitated the radical expansion of choice. On the left, liberalism celebrated the civil right to personal choice and self-definition, along with the state that secured this right by enforcing the law. Both approaches basically converge into the same thing, 
a headlong and depersonalized pursuit of individual freedom and security that demands no concern for the wants and needs of others or for society as a whole. As liberalism has progressed, it has done so by ever more efficiently liberating each individual from particular places, relationships, memberships, and even identities. In the process, it has soured anything that could hold stable meaning and connection from our modern landscape. And in the end, we've all been left terribly alone. That's the heart of it, really. Liberalism is loneliness. And then she goes on to give, you know, all the stats about kind of escalating loneliness that people feel, and not just older folks, and not just women, and not just men, and not just, you know, non-religious people, but religious people. It's It really is epidemic. I mean, it is, if you want to talk about loneliness, you're talking about life for almost huge swaths of the population. So this is kind of a bird's eye view of it, which I thought was helpful. And Deenan offers kind of a vision of smaller and more personal communities, interconnectedness, civic duty, recognizing that no one can live alone. She says that sort of on the right, you have the Benedict Option, Rod Dreher, and on the left, you have We Work and We Live, that whole movement to create fabricated spaces where people are living together and sharing kitchens and things like that. And back in college, Anyway, I know you guys don't deal with any loneliness yourselves, but do you meet, uh, I'm kidding, but where are you with this article? I recently spoke at a conference for clergy spouses. It was mostly like sort of funny, like this is, you know, we always these quirky life experiences, but we covered a whole topic called things I wish I'd known, like things I wish someone had told me. And I talked about how lonely it is and how lonely it is, especially the first three to four years. And this article made me think about, you know, we've served a couple different parishes and we served a parish that was sort of more old school. I mean, they were very small. They'd had much older clergy and they were so welcoming towards me immediately. I mean, immediately welcoming in a way that almost made me bristle. Like I was like, oh my gosh, like they don't, they don't have any boundaries. You know what I mean? I'm supposed to have boundaries. I'm a priest's wife. And I just kind of went with it. And it was the best year of ministry we've ever had. And when I'm like 85 years old, I will always remember that year of ministry. And we don't have that experience in other places. I feel like there's a lot of, you know, the role in, and I'm sure this is in so many aspects of church life, but the role of the priest wife is like yet another role where people are like, worried about putting women or and men in a certain box and worried about whether or not they should expect certain things of them or try to interact with them in a really communal way. Like, how will that make them feel and all these? So anyway, so I did this retreat and there was a room full of women, there, but there were, there were probably 35 women and five men. And there wasn't one thing I talked about that everyone responded to except loneliness. When I stood in front of all of them and said, I wish someone had told me how lonely it would be everyone, including the men, started to like nod, mm. you know. I feel like if if the clergy spouses are lonely, everyone's lonely. I mean, you know, we've all given each other autonomy to the point of self-destruction. I don't know. I mean, that's how it feels to me. This article reminded me of a couple different stories, a couple guys that one of whom used to work with a school down in Central America for impoverished children. And then some of those kids ended up getting like, you know, full scholarships to elite <laughs> New England boarding schools. So there's one of these kids in particular he was close with. And this particular guy that I knew lived in New York City and was really excited to invite this kid to Thanksgiving at his apartment in New York with sort of him and his wife and their families and everything. So they did this whole weekend, this whole Thanksgiving weekend at the end. My friend said to this Central American kid, so what did you think, you know? 
And the kid said, well, um, yeah, Thanksgiving was fun, but that was kind of like every day at my house. You know, like what, you, what was one big thing for you a year is every day at my house. And he said, people in New York just seem really lonely. Mm-hmm. Really, really. It wasn't like he wasn't dazzled by, I mean, he straight was dazzled by the skyscrapers and the vitality and the energy, the lights, whatever. But he, what he noticed was the loneliness. The second story was a buddy of mine who went to go work for International Justice Mission in India for a year. And if you're familiar with that organization, they do incredible work kind of rescuing people from, you know, child slavery, like labor slavery, sex slavery, like, and you see some dark, dark stuff. And he saw some dark stuff. And yet he also said this sense of connection between people and community in India was something he'd never experienced in America before. So I think about those two. But then I also think I have friends who out of college participated in quote unquote intentional communities. And it didn't go well. You know, it was terrible. They started fighting over, you know, salad dressing and things like that. And so I don't know what the answer is, but I'm sort of not sure that forced community is the answer. And part of me does wonder, as disconnected and lonely as American life often feels, whether it's still not... I don't want to say the best of possible options because it's not the best, you know, but I remember, I think it was Alexander Hamilton who said something like, you know, city air breathes freer because you can go there and kind of, you're not subjected to the pressures of whatever small town community you might be a part of. You're not put into a box. There's maybe a little bit less prejudice. You know, there's a little bit less sectarianism, things like that. So I, I kind of go back and forth and, and she does talk about rising suicide rates, which you know, let's, let's talk about suicide. Let's get back to suicide. Suicide is actually it. the word of um, the day. For all you Sesame Street it is suicide out the there. word of the day. But, you know, if you look, if, if you go to Wikipedia and you look at the list of countries uh, by the suicide rate, the ones at the top are not liberal countries. It's like Sri Lanka, Guyana, Mongolia, Kazakhstan, Ivory Coast, you know, Suriname. Um, America shows up somewhere in the 40s. You know, we have one third of the suicide rate that Sri Lanka does. So yes, it's on the rise in America, but I, I don't I don't know if I want to make liberalism like this huge boogeyman necessarily because I I don't you know what did what did Winston Churchill say that you know uh, something like democracy is the worst possible uh, governmental option except for every other option that exists mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> you know and maybe we shouldn't be too quick to think gosh if we just did things a little bit differently everything would be better yeah. like mm-hmm. maybe loneliness is just part and parcel of the human experience yeah I mean it, it's like when people blame capitalism for loneliness they blame inequality or communism for loneliness or, or liberalism yeah, for loneliness it, or it predates all of that i mean it, it unfortunately i wish it it, it i wish it didn't. I mean, like but the, king david king david was lonely right i'm like <laughs> the psalms uh, are full of loneliness you know? i mean it's yeah, yeah it's uh i hadn't thought yeah i mean it, it is so much a part of of the human condition and yet and i mean yet. and yet you know like i live in this suburban context. It's so funny. I did this talk on Monday night at this big Methodist church that's like almost down the street from us. It's so close to our house. And I had no idea how terrifying it would be to do a talk for women that I know. But what was really scary was to do a talk for women who like I'd seen their faces and we live three houses down from each other and I have no idea what their name is. Like, and they don't know what my name is. I mean, you know, and so, and the talk was a lot about how disconnected we all are from each other. So immediately one of them comes up afterwards, really sweet. She comes up afterwards. She's like, you've paid your dues for the women's club, but you haven't actually signed up through the website. Like, cause she- <laughs> That was her response to your talk? <laughs> yes. Oh my gosh. Like, I've heard nothing you said. Okay. 
but but for God's sake, sign like, up on the I website. I will get on it, stat. So yeah, I mean, it's this. Yeah, I don't know. Well, it's definitely it's, it's a kind of ironic or timely that this came across the the desk the same week that Zuckerberg was being interviewed or grilled. And my friend Mike Cosper, his company helps with the sound engineering of this podcast. Uh, he tweeted a picture of Zuckerberg sitting on his chair, and he was sitting on like a three-inch cushion on top of the chair. And he wrote that Mark Zuckerberg sitting on a booster cushion in order to appear taller is a great metaphor for life on Facebook. And, you know, I felt, oh, does that mean? It does not mean Facebook is what everyone deals with. And the fact that you can never actually be totally known if the person they're getting to know is the taller version that you're presenting to another person. You know, it's it's, certainly social media plays a role in the intensification. Posturing. The posturing. I will say, I mean, what I do think that the gospel of grace is the only earthly hope for sort of genuine community. And that sounds hopelessly idealistic, but I'll make a confession, which is that I used to think, why are Christians so strange? Like, why are church people so weird? And then I realized they're not. This is just what happens when you actually get to know people, you know, and that it was only in the context of the church that I was sort of actually seeing people on a really consistent basis and seeing their foibles come out and their idiosyncrasies and learning things about them that I would have never learned about them in the context of just sort of more casual, secular relationships. And it's sort of terrifying because you realize how strange everyone is and how strange you are and how impossible it seems to have relationships with other people when they're so crazy. And that's why this gospel of unconditional love, forgiveness, acceptance, mercy, I'm a sinner, you're a sinner, we're forgiven, I do feel like at the end of the day is the only hope for legitimate sort of Christian community because to learn to uh, get along even when you disagree. And that's kind of what I'm going to talk about in New York too because that's what Paul has to deal with. Like how do we get along in spite of the fact that we like have vehement disagreements about things that really matter to us? And the last thing I'll say is we've been rewatching Roseanne because I haven't watched the new episodes. So we're going back and watching all the old episodes to prepare us for the new episodes. It is amazing and it is so striking because it doesn't feel like it has any of the artifice of current television. It feels grounded and earthy and real in a way that like, to me anyway, nothing on television. Because even shows that tend to be about real relationships, everyone still looks really beautiful. Yeah. You know, and they get, and as the seasons go on, like they get, like if you watch Scrubs, season one, everyone's like, meh. By season 10, like they are dolled up. Mm -hmm. You know, every season people get more and more and more and more beautiful. Roseanne, no, it's it's something totally different. I love that. Uh, they get hideous. It's, it's <laughs> sanctification. Well, no, it's all and it's all in Prime Video. I got to say, it's, that's been a, a real a real treat. Actually, I wasn't. I, it's I'm blown away by how good it oh, is. Oh wow! And it's all this. It's 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 not artifice. So. Oh. I was not allowed to watch Roseanne. So now I'm like, oh, I could go back and watch all the... Roseanne was like forbidden in the household I grew up in. Yeah, my parents like, we we escaped that narrative. So (laughs) (laughs) we're not going to watch it on TV. (laughs) Oh, man. I've been watching Wild Wild Country, the Netflix thing about the Rajneeshi cult. And that's all about... That's a lot of community, a lot of... Enforced community. Not much grace. Uh, in the end, <laughs> in the end, in the final uh, tally, there is not much grace. Actually, there is one amazing instance of grace, but it only happens after. On the flip side of that, anyway, we, physical torture. That- <laughs> I just want to say, like, we in terms of these intentional communities, like 
we all have seen the real world. I mean, this like doesn't go well. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah, I've seen Jersey Shore. Yeah. You know, so <laughs> they put you in a nice house with all the food you can eat, and like there shouldn't be any reason to fight, and yet people are like killing each other. So like, I just well, actually, right. let's let we're gonna move on by talking about <clears throat> what a little bit more about how this sort of community and loneliness works out, and we're gonna talk about AA, one of Mockingbird's favorite topics. But the reason to talk about it is the release of. Leslie Jameson, one of amazing writer whose book, The Empathy Exams, we, we all passed around the office here. She's written a book called The Recovering, Intoxication and Its Aftermath. And it's all about her recovery from alcoholism. And there's also, I think, bulimia and she would say sex addiction. And The New Yorker wrote this long, long thing about it that we highlighted a few weeks ago. And the actual critic wasn't that interesting, but anytime he quoted Leslie, it got fascinating. And so I'll read a little bit from it. She said, the addict's life, Jameson says, thwarts the impulse to narrate self-awareness as salvation by turning the writer into an unreliable narrator of her own life. Leslie, Mm -hmm. Jameson bridled at the big book. That's AA is one of its founding texts. She bridled at the platitudes, not only for their aesthetic offenses, because they're kind of cheesy, I guess, but because of the sentiment that addiction makes no exceptions for individuals. So slogans apply equally to all. AA's insistence that we're all the same, Jameson writes, was basically a way of saying F you, this is a family show, to my (laughs) entire value system. My whole life I'd been taught that something was good because it was original, that singularity was the driving engine of value. Mm. And she talks about willpower and the big book has this, alcoholism of course has a real problem with willpower. The big book's beef with willpower is not limited to its inability to free us from addiction, nor are addicts uniquely lacking in it. The trouble with alcohol lies not in the bottle or in our organic chemicals, but in ourselves and not in our individual constitutions, but in the misbegotten conception of self under which each of us labors, a.k.a. that we must be the authors of our own life stories. We all suffer from these high expectations, alcoholics no more or less than anyone else. But they have encountered the limits of self-will in a particularly dire way. The cure is to get over themselves, to become anonymous. What the AA version of recovery offers is an alternative to the modern idea that we must fashion our lives out of self-knowledge. I'd come to worship self-awareness, Jameson writes, and this brand of secular humanism has its own misguided slogan, know thyself and act accordingly. But what... Jameson writes, if you reverse this, act and know thyself differently. Showing up for a meeting, for a ritual, for a conversation, we might say for church. This was an act that could be true no matter what you felt as you were doing it. Uh, this, is, she's, this is a woman is, I think, a bit of a genius. Um, but here you have the impulse to self-awareness, to know yourself extremely well is the way to heal yourself is the point of life, in fact. And what she finds, what addiction taught her, is the opposite's actually true. That to know yourself deeply is to know how much you are like the other people in the room. And to touch bottom is to find common ground with sufferers of all stripes. And that, in fact, the ideology or the the kind of humanism with which she was operating was handcuffing her to a way of being that was ultimately, I guess, perpetuating this self-destruction and stubbornness rather than kind of creating any kind of breakthrough of the lonely facade that we all erect 
But that's where I'm coming from. What do you guys think about what she wrote? I think about this. I had this conversation probably, uh, I don't know if I have it once a week with a woman, but I have it three times a month with a woman either at the church I serve at or at my husband's church. And the last time I had it was Easter Sunday in the women's bathroom at my husband's church, <laughs> where a woman said to me, they will say some variation of, you know, it's just so hard because I feel like everyone else has it together or it's just so hard because so-and-so's life looks so perfect or whatever. And I have this like answer I've started to give that is a little jarring, but I'm so sick of hearing people say this. And it is that like in ministry, what we learn is when you pull back the veil of people, you see like a train wreck of a horror show behind everyone. Like that's what everyone is working with, right? Like, and I know it's sort of a jarring answer and people, especially women will look at me with this like face of both like relief and being freaked out because it's, you know, I mean, it reminds me so much of the woman at the well. Like, you know, why did she come to know Jesus? Why was his message so compelling for her? because she tells people, he told me everything that I had ever done. You know, he knew me fully and he loved me fully. And he wasn't actually all that interested in everything she'd ever done. He was just interested in like her need of his forgiveness. And so, I mean, I think there's a lot of relief to be found. That's why I'm compelled by AA stuff. I mean, there's a lot of relief to be found in the idea that we're all the same. I mean, there's a lot of relief to be found in the idea that we're all sinful and broken and in need of something greater than ourselves. So I loved this. I guess my thought was, you know, what I always think to myself is that I'm going to find the freedom and peace and joy that I so desperately want when I am finally sort of fully self-actualized, sort of when I arrive. And what a lie that is. How actually the path to freedom and peace and joy is, is, by, is by disappearing, is by, you know, it's, it's like the tagline on our, the quarterly, you know, to care and not yeah. to care. You know, life is just, God is screaming to me through my life over and over again, two things. Well, you know, a lot of things, but for this conversation, two things. One is um, you don't actually matter that much and I love you and I don't want to hear it, but I sort of do because in those moments when I can embrace the reality that I don't matter that much, that I'm not that important, that this whole dream of self-actualization is just, it's just a, it's a dream. It's a fantasy. And just live today, just live this moment, just enjoy the blessing that's been poured out on me. And it is being poured out on me all the time. That's when I find some peace. It's the ambitious side of myself that wants to enslave me. But it's the part of me that, you know, when I'm finally forced, usually by humiliation, (laughs) you know, to give up that ambition, that's when I find peace. It's so much about suffering, right? I mean, it's so much about suffering because I think about, I mean, you guys have probably done this. Like, you, I mean, we will do it as a couple and I'm imagining we're not the only couple that does this where it's like, we're going to drink more water. We're going to exercise every day. We're going to blah, 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 blah. And then like, we'll go through three weeks of being super self-actualized, right? Like... And then, like, a kid will get sick. One of us will get the Three flu. Three weeks is pretty good. Thank I'm, you. That's, that's, I mean, that's impressive. It's that's a, a habit. long time. A habit Bravo. is 21 days. Um, but, <laughs> but well, well, you know, something will fall apart. And then it'll be like, 
Oh, and what's interesting to me is when I think back to the person that is that three-week person, I don't actually like her that much. She's fairly judgmental of other people who aren't meeting her mark. You know what I mean? And she's not super Mm. connected to suffering. And she's feeling like she's really getting by on her own. And she's not a likable person, actually. And so it is in our suffering, and which is AA. I mean, you sit there and you hear other people suffering and you're like, oh my gosh, their suffering is so much like my suffering. That is the good news. You know, Helen Andrews wrote an amazing piece a few years ago called AA Envy, which she really laid out some of how this connects to Christianity more explicitly and and even liberalism. She said that all the other moral languages in which modern Americans are fluent, the languages that sound so inspiring and correct when talking about politics, turn useless in the face of addiction. Trying to analyze addiction like behavior with the tools of modern liberalism, ideas like consent personal choice, scientific evidence, and better education is like trying to put a key into a combination lock. These concepts cannot account for the behaviors that make 21st century Americans feel ashamed of themselves, which is why we can't stop grasping at AA jargon. And she tells us about Molly Monaghan, used to think she was just a nice nun who drank too much as a Catholic nun. Then she joined AA. As she describes it in her memoir, Seeds of Grace, she found in AA many of the practices she was drawn to in convent life, but which had been swept away by Vatican II. Weekly confession, the daily Mm. examination of conscience, and the emphasis on personal salvation rather than social concerns like poverty, racism, hunger, and homelessness. The emphasis on personal salvation she found there in AA. Monaghan doesn't say it, but her reflections leave the reader wondering whether AA hasn't preserved the spirit of Christianity better than some churches have. (laughs) Despite the protestations of the churches that mark 217, it is not the health you need a doctor, is actually their line, our line. Mm -hmm. And then one of the other things Andrew says, which I, I, one of the reasons I find AA so appealing is like when taunted by the new atheists, for example, AA members tend to respond with much less sputtering than Christians and more shrugging. The source of this attractive Mm. equanimity is the knowledge that without the program, they will die. So anyone else can think what they like. Technically, Christians need their own program just as desperately, but for some reason, they're still more likely to get defensive about it. She concludes saying, the person whose addictions are non-alcoholic is left wishing there were some kind of support group for them, some kind of sinners anonymous. That may be how the story of our collective AA envy ends, with the lost children of the post-religious world realizing that the very things that inspire such longing when glimpsed through church basement windows can also be found one floor up. You know, that's so good. I mean, so good. That's really where I'm at. The reason we bang on about AA is that it offers a view of community that's real, fellowship that's real, that's all based in personal salvation uh, rather than a uh, injunction to be more communal or to serve the community. It becomes the community because it's not being told it has to be. Right. It creates community. It creates creates community. community. And yet, you know, I wouldn't say AA is not synonymous with Christianity. We have the the Jesus piece, the forgiveness piece, the atonement piece, I think is mighty important. But this whole sense of the reason why people are so drawn to AA because it lacks a lot of the moralism and you basically just throwing up their hands and being like, listen, you can think whatever you want. Without this, I'd I'd be dead. You know, uh, I was once was blind, but now I see that's all I know. You talk about whatever you want to talk about. 
I find that very attractive. And I think that's one of the reasons why AA has grows so exponentially without anyone doing any evangelism. The evangelism is the mm. work of the law, the work of life, the work of human need and addiction, just deconstructing, to use the word from last time, deconstructing a person and leaving. I keep, <clears throat> yeah. Yeah, sorry. I keep thinking about the clip from Love where Dr. Greg, who is this horrible, horrible human being, wants to promo his book. And Mickey, who is, you know, there's this couple in the show and Mickey is the female part of the couple. And her job is to help Dr. Greg do this reading and promote his book. And so they show up at the bookstore and he's like, hundreds of people will be here, get ready. And then no one's there. There's like three people there on accident. And he freaks out and he's like, you have to get more people here. This is your job. And so Mickey's in AA and she looks on her phone for the closest AA meeting and she finds it and she goes down and they're just getting out and she's like, hey, can you do me a favor? Like, I need I need you to do me, do an act of service. I can't remember how it's worded in AA, but yeah. So she's like, I need you to come and sit. I mean, she's really honest. I need you to come and sit in this because my friend's freaking out. And all these AA people are like, absolutely. And so they like <laughs> walk to the Barnes and Noble and they sit. And what happens is that Dr. Greg completely falls apart. Like he's a therapist. He gives uh. terrible advice. He lies about things that are in his book. And some people have shown up to call him on it. Like it's awful. And everyone in the room is either very anxious or very mad at him, except for the people from AA who literally like pull a chair in front of them, gesture for him to sit down and are like, hey man, what's really going on? (laughs) It's like this beautiful, like you're just like, yes, you know, like everyone else is mad and they're just super chill and like, I feel I feel like you're hiding something that you need to talk about with us. So anyway, yeah, uh, I mean, amazing, amazing show, amazing scene, and of course, like a couple episodes later, when Gus is dragged to church and Mickey has to come along with him, she's totally into it. Yeah. She's like singing the hymns louder than anyone, not freaked out by the God stuff at all, yeah. and doesn't need to deal with some past. You know, right, she's just like, right. this, is, this is where it's at. She's in it, yeah. <laughs> Oh, well, it's a brilliant show. Anyway, I guess it, we could almost end on a long-winded plug for the conference, but that's what well, that's kind of the feeling I, I'm told people get when they come to our stuff. And would that our church communities would reflect a little bit more of the spirit of Bill Wilson. But that's all we got for today. And it is don't talk about Spider-Man. Watch love. <laughs> And um, no, that's it's wrong. All, don't talk about Spider Man. Talk about Spider Man Two. That's what it. That's really. Yeah. Nice. That's and if you're interested is. in Benedictine communities, you really need to watch all the seasons of Real World. That's yeah. our advice. <laughs> yes, exactly, exactly. So thank you for listening, and uh, we'll hopefully see you in a couple of weeks. And you, oh, uh, it was a bit of a fake out last time. The episode about the humor issue, which mailed last week, and is just a thing of great beauty and hilarity. It's coming this coming week because we want to make it extra special. So you'll have this episode today and then next week you'll have that episode and then we'll do the live taping. So I'll see you guys in NYC and thank you for listening and much love to you always. Happy Easter. Happy Easter. Happy Easter. Thanks, Dave. Thank you for listening. Remember, you can find us on the web at www.mbird.com. And we'd always love to hear from you at info at mbird.com. Audio production for The Mockingcast is provided by the Narrativo Group. And if you like what you've heard, 
please do drop over to iTunes and leave us a rating and review. Until next time. Praise the Lord.